Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. Some of those who have been with Justinian at the palace late at night, men who were pure of spirit, thought they saw a strange, demoniac form taking his place. One man said that the emperor suddenly rose from his throne and walked about, and indeed, he was never wont to remain sitting for long. And immediately, Justinian's head vanished, while the rest of his body seemed to ebb and flow, whereat the beholder stood aghast and fearful, wondering if his eyes were deceiving him. But presently, he perceived the vanished head filling out and joining the body again, as strangely as it had left it. So Tom Holland, that is the historian Procopius, uh, talking of the Emperor Justinian, the 6th century emperor of what was then, what they would have called the Roman Empire, what we often call the Byzantine Empire. Uh, Do you think Justinian, two questions, do you think he was a demon? And do you think his head was capable of leaving the body and reappearing on the body afterwards? Well, I mean, the two questions are kind of interconnected, aren't they? Well, you could be a demon and not have that power, I suppose. Well, I think it's unlikely. I think if you're a demon, you can definitely do that. Um, and there's a, he goes on to say, doesn't he, that um, there's another person who comes to Justinian, looks into his face, and the whole of the face melts and becomes yeah. uh, a featureless lump of flesh. And then gradually the features come back on. That's right. The face changed into a shapeless mass of flesh with neither eyebrows nor eyes in their proper places. Very disturbing. And then what Procopius then goes on to say is that I myself did not witness this, but I spoke to people who definitely saw it. Yeah. Which I don't know. I, so Justinian, of course, becomes um, the great lawgiver in Roman history. He compiles this enormous corpus of Roman law, all the kind of the decrees and dictates uh, from from the new Rome, Constantinople, and from the the old Rome, going all the way back to the days of the Republic. And I suspect that Procopius's evidence would not stand up in 
in court when measured against the splendor and gravity of Justinian's own law code. But we will come to this, won't we, at the end of this episode, because we this is part two of an episode on not just Justinian, but also Theodora. That's right. We talked about how they their rise to power in the first episode. Uh, and if you haven't listened to that, you probably should. <laughs> uh, so we've got to the spring of the year 527. Justinian, who um, is from this Balkan background, um, comes from what is now North Macedonia originally. Um, his uncle, Justin, had been emperor. Justinian has succeeded him. And his wife, Theodora, the circus performer, acrobat, um, dancer, prostitute, kind of courtesan, turned empress. Um, and she's in her 20s, he's in his 40s, and they have this tremendous project to rebuild the glory of Rome, don't they, Tom? They absolutely do. So Justinian basically has two two mission statements, so two goals, one of which is to see the Roman Empire restored to its former dignity. So by this point, the western half of what had originally been the Roman Empire has gone. Yeah. Um, so Britain, obviously, uh, Gaul, Spain. Italy, North Africa, and Justinian dreams of getting them back. But the other thing that he dreams of is seeing heaven established on earth. He's a very, very devout Christian. And essentially, the two the two ambitions are not entirely disconnected. Yeah. Because he sees the, uh, the power and the splendor and the might of the Roman Empire as being expressive of God's plans for the whole of humanity. Um, so if he can... If he can win God's favor, if he can reorder the Roman Empire to reflect the will of God, then God's favor will descend on the empire. And hopefully, before you know it, the legions will be back in Britain. And is, is another thing that binds them, Tom, um, his belief in the dignity and the importance of, of the office of emperor and of central control and central power. Because obviously, one of the things that what had happened to the Roman world generally, I suppose you would say, in the previous 200 years or so, was a kind of this sort of centrifugal process where bits were breaking off, where authority was being challenged and authority passing to local warlords and things who end up becoming in the long run kings of kingdoms. And a lot of Justinian's projects seems to me is about reasserting Constantinople's control, whether it be in religion or indeed you talked about law, reforming the laws or, or, or physical control over Italy and um, North Africa and so on. And don't you think that's a lot of it? So that when he... When he thinks about heaven on earth, as you as you put it, that's the rule of God or Christ, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The rule of the one deity. And and the, the, the idea of the rule of one emperor and the rule of one God, I mean, they're kind of the same thing to him, aren't they? Don't you think? Well, uh, e- except that, of course, the, the emperor does not control the church. Um, the, but he, the, he the, likes the patriarch. The, the patriarch of Constantinople yeah. is much more under his thumb, obviously, than the Bishop of Rome is, say, uh, or, or even the patriarch of, of um, the Pope in Alexandria. But even the patriarch in Constantinople is a figure who, whose responsibility to God is of a different order to the emperors. So that I think that Justinian does absolutely see himself a- appointed by God to serve as the shield and defender of the church. And he undoubtedly sees himself as set there, set on earth to bring unity to the church. And Justinian is very, very proud of himself as a kind of theologian. He, he yeah. likes to get churchmen in and then berate them um, and kind of lecture them. And he definitely, you know, he's very, he, he sees it as his duty to stamp out heresy. He sees it as his duty to do all that he can to close down kind of the remaining strongholds of 
pagan philosophy. So Justinian is very is notorious as the figure who closes down supposedly the Platonic school in Athens. Yeah, which in fact the truth is rather different. This isn't the Platonic school. The Platonic school had been been destroyed long, long before, back in the the first century BC. Um, so, but but there, this is a school that had been set up in the fourth century. It's it's not really Platonic. It's neo-Platonic. It's very mystic. It's kind of weird. It's full of you know. It's this is not a kind of stronghold of Greek rationalism or anything like that. Um, and what what Justinian does, he doesn't actually ban it, but he stops kind of central funding funding from the government um and philosophical schools do remain in well in alexandria for instance places like that so so that it kind of ticks along but the the the, the writing is on the wall for for that kind of philosophical tradition um and as i say he's ve- he's very very brutal in stamping out heresy so there's an obsession with coherence and order absolute there. coherence and he sees it as his duty to do this and one <laughs> one of the kind of the um the, the measures of this is that there's um there's a kind of calendar and um, one of the ornaments for this calendar is the heads of heretics on spikes. Oh, nice. <laughs> Which is kind of like an advent calendar or something. Is that like a calendar you uh, get from a Chinese restaurant or something? Kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, he sees that as part of his duty. But but also, of course, you know, we mentioned in, in the first part that there's this kind of division within the emperor between the Chalcedonians, who are the Orthodox Christians, uh, and Monophysites, who, who are centered much more in... Um, in Alexandria and Egypt and other parts of the, the the Levant, and of course Theodora is a monophysite. Yeah. So there's a sense in which I think that their relationship is, you know, he's he is saying, you know, by, he's saying, you know, by by treasuring Theodora so much, by promoting her so high, he is kind of saying to the monophysites, you know, we you are still Christian. Um, you know, you are still kind of beloved as I, be- as I love Theodora. So that's a part of it. But in the other areas that you mentioned, so law particularly and military conquest, absolutely. Justinian sees himself as appointed by God. There's one other element I want to ask your opinion about. So um, we talked in the first episode about Rome's great rival. I mean, by far Rome's biggest rival, which is Persia. So throughout the sixth century, Rome is facing a different kind of Persian empire than the one that it had faced a few generations, a couple of generations earlier. So a much more self-confident, much more coherent, um, Sasanian, it's the Sasanian dynasty that are, that are running the Persian Empire. And at the same time that Justinian's reign is almost exactly kind of coincidental with that of a guy called Khosro in Persia, who is himself a centralizer, a, ref- a massive reformer, really beefing up the, the power of the kind of Persian monarchy and the Persian state. And there are some historians, aren't there, who say, well, what Justinian is doing is basically an attempt to kind of tool up the Roman Empire so that it can properly compete with its big Persian rival. How much do you think that's true, Tom? You're right that Khosrow is the great rival of Justinian and might almost, might even have been his brother because um, Khosrow's father, Kaved, a very formidable figure had kind of repaired the Persian empire after it had been shattered by a Hunnic invasion, really put it back t- together, but had then signed up to a kind of radical form of Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism is the, the state religion of, of Iran, of Persia. Um, that was a kind of proto-communism, which is kind of, you know, kind of interesting combination an absolute monarchy in the form of Kavad and this kind of communist um, form of millenarianism. Um, but Khosro was much more orthodox, and therefore the Mazdakites, as these communists were called, these kind of proto-communists were called, didn't want him to succeed. But Khosro was Kavad's favourite son, 
So it all becomes kind of very complicated. And Kavad has this wheeze that perhaps one way to secure Khosrow's succession is to have him adopted by Justin. Um, but obviously, the, the the problem with that is that Khosrow might then end up, <laughs> you know, inheriting the Roman Empire as well. So that gets put on the back burner. But there is this sense, I think, it, that, that Khosrow and Justinian are, you know, they're heavyweights who are matched up together. Yeah. And the fact that there is this fraternal quality, you know, it's Cain and Abel, you know, these are Jacob and Esau, Romulus and Remus. Um, these are people who are so alike that they're almost destined to go to war. But the real problem for, for Justinian, I think, is that no matter how how many bribes he chucks the Persians' way to kind of sign peace treaties, no matter how much he beefs up the defences along the Syrian frontier, and of course, you know, people will know from the way that the Islamic State just crossed over from Syria into Iran, that there are very few natural features here. And so essentially the Roman defences are dependent on a certain number of very strong kind of fortifications. But he knows that if he starts launching campaigns in the West – he's almost guaranteed to have the Persians come calling in the East. So that really is the problem. And that is why prior to Justinian, since the fall of Rome and the, and the, 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 the collapse of direct Roman rule over Italy and North Africa, that's really why there haven't been any sustained attempts to get them back. But here's an interesting counter argument to that, Tom. Um, I, I, I agree with that. The, the Rome faces, I mean, what people will now call Byzantium, but what we're calling Rome. That's called the new Rome. Yeah, Constantinople is facing a huge sort of geopolitical dilemma which is it wants to re you know it has it seizes these commitments in the west these ideological commitments i suppose but it also has the the, the pressure of, of persia its great superpower rival in the east but my old i mean i'm going to quote my old tutor um peter saris who um the great historian of the sixth century who, yeah who we mentioned in in our in our episode on disease exactly he argues that by one of the things that so of course Previous emperors had quite fancied the idea of reconquering the West. But he argues that one of the, the things that really drove Justinian to want to do it is that he really needs those resources of Italy, of North Africa, of Spain, ideally, um, because he needs to kind of tool up for that war again, for, for fighting the Persians. That basically Justinian needs to take take command of the kind of Mediterranean sea lanes. He needs to get taxes and resources flooding in because ultimately – Tom, this might surprise some listeners. Rome, in many ways, is the weaker of the two superpowers, wouldn't you say? Against the, I mean, the Romans have never really. I'm not sure. I would say. I mean, that. well, here's evidence that it might be the weaker. So, in 531, so within four years of becoming emperor, Justinian is paying the Persians eleven thousand pounds in gold a year not to attack him. Now, if you're the person paying that tribute. I mean, you'd rather be the person receiving the tribute than the person paying it, wouldn't you? But the Romans have been doing this continuously. But the reason they can do it is they can afford it. So in a sense, you know, if, if, if a strong economy right. is the basis of strength, then by that measure, it's the Romans. Well, another way of looking at that, though, Tom, would be to say that it's the sort of fat, effete, weak party that is paying the lean, hungry, militarily powerful party to go away. I think that's to buy into an understanding of empires that, that may, you know, may, be, may well be reflective of kind of traditional Greek or Roman approaches yeah. to it. But Anastasius, who we mentioned in the previous one, the, um, the accountant turned emperor, he has set the Roman economy on such firm footings. That it can do that. That it can afford to do that. So it's Justinian is spending money to keep Khosrow happy. Yeah. 
so that he can start preparing for a war against the Goths and the Vandals in the West. So you don't see him doing the West in order because he is anxious about the East, as it were. I think that's a part of it. But I think I think it's much more that he has a sense that it is the destiny of Rome, God ordained to eternal victory is, is the phrase. That, right. You know, wonderful book by by Michael McCormack, Eternal Victory, about how the Romans see the world in, in, in the time of Justinian. He sees it as predestined, but he's aware that there are huge, huge problems of which Persia is the largest. So essentially, he's trying to buy Persia off so that he can then yeah. launch this kind of this return, which is something that Roman aristocrats in the West as well are dreaming of. So yeah. by the time of Justinian, you're starting to get piracy across the Mediterranean, which is something the Romans haven't had to deal with since the time of Pompey the Great back in the first century BC. So this is seen as a kind of humiliation. And so there's this vision of an armed prince, you know, that the land and the sea will kind of quake before his approach, that Rome's dormant navies will once again command the shipping lanes. This is part of the the kind of the propaganda that has been swirling around ever since the collapse of Rome. And part of Justinian's whole, all his plans, these great plans he's had is that he wants to, he basically wants to become that kind of puissant Caesar yeah. returning to the mastery of the sea and the land. Well, I mean, there's no doubt, Tom, that he, that he's, he's well equipped to do that. He's called a koimetos, the sleepless one, because he, works all day he's great with paper i mean he's a tough man he wouldn't be emperor if he hadn't he wouldn't have got to the top um if he wasn't but he obviously works tremendously hard but he also needs money i mean this is the constant issue for roman emperors isn't it they need money so right from the start when he comes in in 527 he has two guys in particular john of cappadocia um who, who's a the, the sort of tax man <laughs> par excellence yeah. who i think introduces 26 new taxes in a couple of years he's the rishi sunak of makes him immensely popular um and a guy called tribonian who's in charge of reforming the laws basically gathering all the laws together and and sort of finally codifying this great mass of rules and regulations that's left over from centuries of of roman civilization but the taxes in particular are obviously very unpopular they're an attempt to again to assert central control over the periphery but but not just the periphery not just because so also this over the senate yeah so so one of the you know we in the first part we talked about how one of the ways in which constantinople is the is is the second rome the new rome is that it does have a senate exactly as the original rome had had but Justinian is such a kind of autocratic figure that he's impatient with that, as many of the you know the earlier Caesars had been. So Procopius, in his in his secret history, the one that we've been reading from, um, he can he compares uh, Justinian to Domitian, who is one of the kind of the traditional tyrants of Rome, one of Suetonius's yes. twelve Caesars. He says that Justinian looked just like Domitian, yes, didn't he? I mean, exactly sort of like yeah. the most sort of it's basically like saying to your political rival, you know, you look just like Adolf Hitler. I mean, a bit, it's just yes. a ridiculous. But it's very pointed because D- Domitian was much hated by the Senate for the way mm. that he bullied them, he executed them, he put them in the shadow, he refused them to do their stuff, he kind of rubbed their noses in the fact that they were politically impotent and justinian is doing the same so that so, so the fact that uh, you have people within constantinople who are unhappy about the growing tax rate 
And you have senators who are very, very unhappy about the kind of autocratic ways of, of Justinian. So one of the things that Justinian and Theodora both do is they say that anyone who comes into their presence, rather than just kind of crooking the knee gently, as had previously been the formula, they have to kneel down and they have to kiss the slipper or the hem of the robe. Well, this is all about the dignity of the office again, isn't it? That, you well, know, but he, but, but the- this is this is something new. I mean, this is kind of this is a conscious kind of repudiation of the, the inheritance of Rome, if you like, because yeah. that that inheritance from the distant republic before the time of Augustus, when Rome had been a, a community of citizens. Romans continue to see themselves as citizens, but Justinian repudiates that. He sees them as subjects. Yeah. And this is something that that lots of people in Constantinople don't like. Well, Tom, just before we set that up, long-time listeners to this podcast will be struck by the resemblance between this and a debate that we had in a podcast on Alexander the Great, about Alexander introducing the Persian custom of proskinesis and people you know, exchanging kisses with them and stuff. And it's a not dissimilar issue, is it? That not it the idea of, a, of an autocrat trying to get people to pay homage to him, to publicly abase themselves against, and people but, who think of themselves as having this sort of civic virtue, that means they can't do it. I think the difference is, is that Alexander is consciously adopting a foreign practice. Yeah. Um, Justinian sees himself as being true to the inheritance of, of Roman custom. So he sees, as Caesar... He sees himself as the heir of Constantine and ultimately of Augustus, but chiefly of Constantine, that he he is kind of God's anointed. That's what he's been put on earth for. Yeah. But of course, his aim is also to restore Rome to its former greatness. But the very way that he is trying to restore Rome involves crushing huge amounts of what makes the second Rome still Roman. So the dignity of the Senate, the, the yeah. status of, of the people of Constantinople and beyond as citizens. Um I can see, Tom, that in this in this argument, you and I would be on very opposite sides. So which side do you think? I think he Justinian did it and he was right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would be on the other side. Of course uh, you would, because you're a Ciceronian, aren't you? Yeah, I would yeah, be. I would, would be. be. <laughs> anyway, listen, all of this brings us to the beginning of the year 532. So Justinian has been in power for, what, five years? He's started his great reform programs. He hasn't yet started his reconquest of the West. He's clearly itching to do. Uh, it's January. Um, it's probably quite cloudy, kind of cool day. Um, everybody's looking forward to a great day out at the Hippodrome. The um, the blues and the greens are all tanked up, ready for a great day out. And, um, and it all goes horribly wrong, doesn't it? And we will find out what happens at the Hippodrome after the break. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows 
to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to The Rest is History. The date is the 10th of January, 532. We are in Constantinople in the Hippodrome. The stands are packed. Everybody is looking forward to a great day of sport. Tom Holland... (laughs) What happens next? Great day of sport and a great day of rioting because, of course, for the rival factions, the Blues and the Greens, uh, the chance to have a punch-up is a crucial part of the entertainment. And the Blues and the Greens all start piling into each other. Uh, there's there's a riot. Uh, various bits of, of infrastructure outside the Hippodrome catch fire. Um, Justinian sends the troops in to um, crack heads and restore law and order. Um, the ringleaders get arrested. And these, are, these ringleaders are both blues and greens. And the following day, they are, they are hanged. I think there are eight of them. Is that right? Is that, I can't about eight of them, them, yeah. So there are about eight of them. And six of them all goes well. They all die. Well, well not, not well for them. Yeah, but for Justinian, and you're yeah, for, very sure. much on the side of Justinian. I am indeed, yeah. He, yeah, he yeah, did yeah. it, and he was right to do it. But uh, two of them, the rope snaps. And one of these lucky people is a blue, and one of them is a green. And they kind of get bundled up by monks don't they and taken yeah. a, a, a across the bosphorus to, the, to a monastery on the other side where they they or church and there they're able to claim sanctuary and so then there's a kind of issue of what happens what's going to happen next yeah. uh, and pressure grows on justinian to issue a pardon and on the 14th of january justinian comes to the uh, to the hippodrome takes his seat and announces that he's not going to pardon them. And Dominic, what 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 is the result of that? Does this go down well? The crowd goes absolutely mental, doesn't it? I mean, the people just start roaring and shouting, and and clearly there's been some orchestration, I would say. Um, and we were talking before the break about the the sort of disquiet of uh, people who don't like Justinian's new taxes. They probably don't like the fact that he, he is expecting greater public obedience and self-abnegation to him and to Theodora. There are probably lots of people actually who regard them as parvenus, aren't there? Who think, oh, he's just some Balkan peasant and she's a definitely ex-prostitute. What well, are we se- doing? Among the Senate, definitely. These ghastly people. Um, so there's probably an element of that. Um, and there's also clearly an element of the crowd being, you know, tanked up and enjoying a punch-up and stuff. And so the crowd start chanting at him as they, they, they go berserk and they start chanting as one famously um, Nika, Nika, or Nika, Nika, depending on your pronunciation, which basically means victory, victory, or conquer, conquer, which is, I guess, which is what they would have chanted anyway. Am I right, Tom? Um, during the races, yes, and but also what you know, the one that wins, then they they do the chanting, and half, so half the crowd will chant it, and half won't. Yeah, because they're you know half is half is back the side that's won, half is back the side that's lost. The thing that is. <laughs> unbelievably ominous and must have been completely terrifying for Justinian is that now the whole Hippodrome is chanting this and they're doing it as unison. And it becomes obvious to him that the greens and the blues have teamed up and they all spill out of the, um, of the Hippodrome 
And basically, they they start disassembling the center of of Constantinople. So yeah, burning, they pillaging. burn. And so so we mentioned so Hagia Sophia, the great cathedral of Constantinople, goes up in flames. The Augusteion, which is the kind of the great uh, open space next to, to Hagia Sophia, and the, the Schalke, the the bronze gates that lead into the palace, that that goes up in flames. Um, the baths of Zeuxippus go up in flames. So that's the baths that had all the classical statuary. So it's a bit like the British Museum going up in flames. I mean, everything yeah. just gets lost. And basically, it's absolute carnage. And Justinian tries to kind of reimpose order. So he sends in, I think, about, about 1,500 troops. And they, they're able to kind of s- stabilize the situation so that the palace itself is not under threat. But they can't bring central Constantinople back under order. And it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Yes, yeah, five days. Five days before he goes back to the Hippodrome to address the crowd. And at this point, he has been reduced basically to begging. So he says, I'll, you know, if you please go home, I'll give you an amnesty. You know, there'll be a free pardon. And they howl him down at this point. And at this point, Tom, now you mentioned, in, I think in the previous episode, that there was somebody else who could have been emperor, um, who was called Hypatius, who had been a commander away on the frontiers. And the nephew of, of Anastasius. And he's quite yeah. old. But at this point, he reemerges as a significant figure because some of the crowd say he's the man we want as emperor. I mean, this is not unprecedented, right, for no. crowds to go berserk and to call for new emperors. And, you know, if you lose the support of the army and of the palace guard, then you're toast, basically. That must be the fear that Justinian has at this point. Yeah, I mean, Hypatius doesn't, I think, want to be emperor at all. <laughs> you know he really doesn't uh, particularly because he knows that um if justinian succeeds in 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 restabilizing everything then he, he's absolute toast but it doesn't matter the, the 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 crowds pick him up they hail him as emperor and the destruction continues and justinian is very anxious by this point whether he can trust anyone whether he can trust his soldiers whether he can trust um his officials and he starts to contemplate flight yeah. So he he orders ships to uh, to be prepared. Um. So you know because the, there are uh, uh, harbors in the palace, so he could escape from that way. And it is at this point that Theodora shows her metal. Probably our most famous contribution to history, apart from that business with the geese, Tom. Um. Would you like me to read Theodora's what Theodora says? I would love you to. Yeah. She says, "Every man who is born into the light of day <laughs> must sooner or later die." And how could an emperor ever allow himself to be a fugitive? May I myself never willingly shed my imperial robes, nor see the day when I am no longer addressed by my title. If you, my lord, wish to save your skin, well, you will have no difficulty in doing so. We are rich, there is the sea, there are our ships. But consider first whether when you reach safety, you will not regret that you did not choose death in preference. As for me... I stand by the ancient saying, the purple is the noblest winding sheet. Iron lady. Is that uh, how you imagine Theodora speaking to him? <laughs> but, but to a degree, of course. So, so um, Theodora is very keen to crush the enemy within. She is. She's facing rioters. She's facing strikers. And so what are you going to do in that situation? You're going to recruit new platoons of police which is right. basically <laughs> basically what Justinian is shamed by this kind of iron resolve. And um, a whole load of troops conveniently do turn up. One is uh, under the command of a barbarian from the Danube called Amundus. 
Yeah. So he has he has a load of crack troops. Fortunately, they're available in Constantinople. And the other is uh, under the command of a, a very famous figure, probably Justinian's most famous general, um, the, the hero of a novel by Robert Graves, Belisarius. Yeah. And these troops get kind of, you know, rather like Mrs. Thatcher getting the police, getting, getting the Met to go and break the strike in Nottingham. Justinian and Theodora mass these troops and send them into uh, into the Hippodrome. And by this point, um, Justinian has kind of reactivated his link with the blues and has said, you know, watch out, guys, you don't want to die and you know, to defend the Greens. So most of the blues by this point, if not all, but most have left the Hippodrome. Um, so you've got the Greens, you've got a few stragglers. Uh, they're all unarmed. They're in the Hippodrome. And Mundus's troops come in one end. Belisarius has come in the other. Yeah. And they just kind of cut their way through and they slaughter everybody in their path. And actually one person you haven't mentioned, Tom, for those who get out, there are more troops waiting outside under the command of somebody called Narses. Oh, I forgot Narses. Narses, who was, Narses, who was one of the eunuchs, wasn't he, in our our, t- our 10 top eunuchs? So, so newcomers to the podcast will be delighted to hear we have an episode about the top 10 eunuchs in history. And uh, Narses is probably the top Armenian eunuch in history. He's of Armenian descent. He's, yeah. he's about, I mean, we talked about, we compared Justin with Joe Biden. I mean, I think Narses makes Joe Biden look positively youthful because Narses is about 140, isn't he? But he's he's a tremendous. I mean, he's a and tremendous, he's an impressive man. Yeah, and very loyal to Justinian. And if you were, if you listened in the first part, you may remember that Justin, at this point, who Justinian's predecessor, uncle, um, he becomes emperor because he gets given large amounts of gold to go out and bribe people to um, support one of the one of the pretenders, and and um, Justin just pockets the gold. So Narses is given gold by Justinian to go and do the same. But Narses, unlike Justin, stays loyal and true. And he goes out and he bribes all the various ringleaders. He bribes the various senators to calm down. And this is this is what kind of precedes the ability of of Belisarius and Mundus to, to 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 slaughter everyone in the Hippodrome. That's not a bad choice from Narses. I mean, Narses has a tremendous life, doesn't he? He does. Yes. I mean, he has a great yeah. career, as we shall see. Well, so, Mundus and Belisarius do. They all do. Yeah. Right. So they've killed all the, all the rioters or those who were left, but they're left with a smoking, smouldering capital city, basically. Uh, shall I read you what John the Lydian said about it? I'd love to hear what John the Lydian said. The city was a series of blackened, blasted hills, like the reaches of a volcano, uninhabitable because of dust, smoke, and the foul stench of building materials reduced to ashes. And presumably tens of thousands of bodies. 50,000, according to Procopius. Yeah. So I mean, if we're saying, you know, the population of, of Constantinople is half a million, that's a tenth of the city. Yes. Not the first time there'll be a lot of dead bodies in the streets of Constantinople. So a tenth of, of the population perhaps slaughtered. I mean, m- maybe an exaggeration, probably an exaggeration, but still, you know, enormous numbers of casualties and the whole of central Constantinople wiped out. But there's good news for Justin in that as well, because he, he, <laughs> there's a lot of good news. He's got rid of a lot of people they didn't like. Plus, he can rebuild the city now as he wants. He can create the imperial city of, you know, you talked about him wanting heaven on earth. He can yeah. create heaven on earth in, in, in one building in particular. Yes. So Hagia Sophia, the cathedral has burnt down and the new building, the new Hagia Sophia starts to rise from the ashes like a phoenix. Um, very, very rapidly after the um, after the riots, which suggests that that Justinian had already been planning it, probably. Yeah. Uh, so that is that is one example of the way in which um, the Nica riots actually end up redounding hugely to his benefit. The other, of course, is that um, as you said, he's been able to get rid of a lot of his enemies. 
Um, so quite a lot of the senators, they get disinherited, sent into exile. Uh, poor, poor Hypatius gets executed. Um, yeah, he never even wanted to be emperor, the poor fellow. No, no, very sad. But more importantly, the institutional power of the Senate is now massively, massively diminished. Yeah. And so everything that Justinian wanted for his role as emperor has basically been consolidated. And this is one of the paradoxes of Justinian's reign, is that this man who is ruthlessly, monomaniacally obsessed with restoring the Roman Empire to its former grandeur, does so much to destroy elements within the new Rome that derive from the old Rome. And so that's, you know, the Nicorites play a key role in the process by which Constantinople becomes that much less Roman. Even as Justinian sees himself, you know, legitimately as the kind of archetype of a traditional all-conquering triumphant Caesar. And I think that that is the paradox that in a sense structures his whole reign. It structures the wars that he will very soon be launching westwards to retake Italy and North Africa. And I think that that's a note on which we should end this episode. I agree. But just before we do that, Tom, Hagia Mm. Sophia. Uh, so he builds the new Hagia Sophia. I mean, you must have been to this many times. For me, the building that Justinian, well, it wasn't Justinian, was it? It was Anthemius of Tralles and Isidore of Miletus with this colossal dome. You can see it right, you can see it to this day in Istanbul. And to me, there is nothing, I mean, maybe the mosaics of Justinian and Theodore in Ravenna, but there is nothing that better captures the grandeur and the might of the Eastern Roman Empire, this empire that Gibbon wrote off as this sort of pitiful relic, corrupt relic. I mean, to me, to go into the Hagia Sophia, I always find it just the most transcendent experience. Yeah, it's the building that more than anything else, I think, serves as the embodiment of of Constantinople, of the Byzantine Empire, because on the one hand, of course, it stands in a line of descent from the original Rome. So the dome is a Roman invention, uh, developed from the uh, the volcanic ash, actually, that had been spewed up by Vesuvius, um, developed by Nero, developed famously by Hadrian with the Pantheon in Rome. And this vast dome, the largest dome ever built when it was raised, it's the ultimate triumph of Roman engineering. Hmm. But at the same time, of course, it is, you know, unlike the Pantheon, it's built as a, a church to the glory of God. And when Justinian goes in, it is said, he cries out, I have triumphed over you, Solomon. Solomon, I have surpassed thee. But of course, Solomon, neither Solomon nor Justinian, Tom, had ever recorded a podcast. So, <laughs> no. so, so they had not yet ascended to the heights of, of human ingenuity and achievement, as we have. There's a note on which to end this episode. On that note, on that bombshell, we will rec- This was meant to be one episode, by the way. We've just finished <laughs> episode two. We will reconvene next time for episode three, where we will be talking about the reign of Justinian Theodora, Justinian's wars. Um, the, we'll, be, we'll be reflecting on the plague of Justinian, which we touched on last, well, I was going to say last time, but several times ago with Carl Harper when we talked about disease and the end of the Roman Empire. And I suppose, Tom, we'll also be talking about Justinian and Theodora's legacy, the way they've been remembered, and the the way we think about Rome and Byzantium. And we'll be talking about Procopius' secret history, where that is coming from, how accurate, yeah. you know, the uh, the account of, of Theodora and the geese and Justinian's face turning into a lumpless, uh, a featureless lump of flesh. <laughs> so there a lot more demons. There will be a lot more of Tom's special brand of gymnastics next time. See you then. Bye-bye. See you then. Bye.
Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.